0: But the next day, we we made a plan, and uh, our plan was to get paying customers and come back to YC and show them that we've got some customers. And That's exactly what we did. Spent all day on Saturday just programming. Suddenly, we just had customers coming in. (laughs) That was crazy. And on Monday at 9 a.m., we sent them an email saying, Hey, look, we've got 20 paid customers. Are you going to reconsider us? We were really sad when they said no. A year later, we were at 100K era. A couple of months later after that, we were like at a million era. And bloody hell, what a ride that was. My name is Timur Mamadov. I'm co-founder and CTO of Vidio.
1: This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead. A team that has your back. I'm your host, Noel Lappart. And today, how Timur Mamadov built the easiest way to edit your videos with one click online. All this and more on Code Story. Timur Mamadov grew up in Russia within a very loving and supportive family. His dad was an entrepreneur, so he knew someday he wanted to do the same, or at least have some sort of brand. His mom gave up everything to support her children, and he's very grateful for that. He was a creative kid. He kept to himself with millions of hobbies, including graffiti, which was a way to escape and express himself. At the time in Russia, there weren't consequences attached to painting, and Timur got quite a rush from it. He found himself hacking PlayStation portables at a young age when his cousin introduced him to programming. During his last year in university, his world got flipped upside down when his dad's business went under. Immediately, his family dropped into poverty, and his relationship to programming became about survival. He started attending hackathons as much as he could, and he met his co-founder Saba, who helped him learn how to make money contracting. They hit it off and have been through so much together that they consider each other brothers. One day they got fed up with the complexity of video editing software and decided to disrupt it. This is the creation story of V.io. Veed.io is
0: a simple online video editor. We really think that editing videos and working with video in general should be easy. <laughs> For some strange reason, we quit our jobs and invested all of our life savings into building it and um, to make it happen and that's exactly what we're doing today. When we first started building the product, we didn't really intentionally start building it. it we kind of fell into all of that and um, I was in, the, in university at the time doing my final year project and Sabah had a job and you know, if I'm being completely honest, I was. Wanted to drop out from and but I couldn't because if I did, I would lose visa and be deported. But in my final year, we had to write a dissertation project. You could choose your own topic, whichever one you wanted. So naturally, Sab and I wanted to kill two birds with one stone and, you know, use it as some uh, sort of as an opportunity to build a startup. So we brainstormed some ideas. It had to be an idea that has enough scientific weight to it to be accepted, but also it should have been um, fun or cool enough for ourselves so we could enjoy it really. We eventually uh, came up with something and I ended up writing a project that was called Veed AI. I think it was called, if I remember correctly, automated generation of video summaries from news articles. I think that that was it. So. The basic idea, the basic premise here was to basically create an AI system that takes your lab bible, Buzzfeed, or any other news articles and turn them into short bite-sized informational videos, but long story short, it failed, as simply put, uh, no one wanted it. There were many other reasons, but no one really wanted the product. But I would say this part of the story is still a few steps away from us trying to build an actual MVP for ViDIO we know today.
1: Well, let's jump into that part of the story then. So tell me about that MVP, how you went up to it, um, how long it took you to build it, and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. <laughs> it's going to be quite a story, I
0: think. It took us a long, long time to get to an MVP, and I think we've had I'm gonna maybe talk about three, four MVPs, but we had a lot of MVPs, maybe seven in total. We had to rewrite our code base entirely multiple times until we basically found the solution that eventually works. And you know, you may have heard us say that we've made every single mistake in the book there is, and you know, we re- we really did. These mistakes have cost us hundreds, maybe thousands of hours of wasted time after we realized that certain approaches weren't really good enough or we were starting over and over again. But first things first, we didn't really know anything about video or video editing at the time in general. So we just first started educating ourselves about what videos actually were, what what the frame rates are, what, what the frames are, and you know all that jargon around video editing. And I think once we had a good idea of what video editing was, the fundamentals, that's when we really started. We basically had two big challenges. The first challenge was how do we create a back-end that could create high-quality custom videos? And second challenge was how do we build a graphical user interface front-end that would accurately emulate the final result that comes out the other end? So essentially, we had to make two renderers and two systems in one. And that's a big challenge. So to make things simpler, we decided to focus on the backend first. And the biggest question really we wanted to answer at the time was, is it actually possible to create high quality videos programmatically with open source software, basically? And yeah, turns out, yes. But it took us a, a while to really figure out which technologies really were working better than others. We were really scared of over-engineering our tech stack before knowing if anyone could or would even use it. So we decided to build our own MVP using Processing. And Processing is, if I remember correctly, it's a Java-based creative coding toolkit. It's really simple. It's uh, got loads of features right out of the box, and it just felt right working with it. Um, It kind of almost felt like the perfect solution at the time. Unfortunately, though, we really struggled to push it further than, than making decent GIFs, I'd say. Something that was immediately obvious about it was that processing took a lot of time to create videos. A few seconds of video would take nearly five minutes or more to complete the task. But I think the biggest issue really was that we really couldn't integrate seamlessly with processing with our frontend. It took us about two months to realize that and we scrapped it all and basically started all over again. And since our biggest problem at the time was that we couldn't really seamlessly connect with front end, we thought, well, why can't we just run our front end on the back end? All we needed to do at the time is to build a front end preview in the browser and then run basically the same browser preview headlessly on our server and record it. And um, what we wanted to achieve is to basically have users upload their video and once it is displayed in the editor, allow them to add extra layers to it with CSS and HTML. So for example, if you wanted to add text, you would use some absolute positioning and just place it over the top. Essentially, what we do after that would take this editing that was done on the previous side, replay it on the back end and record it. In order for us to be able to do that, we needed a headless scriptable browser. And there are many out there. There is Puppeteer, there is um, Phantom.js. And uh, we basically ended up using Phantom.js because that's what we knew from previous projects we've done. And it just was perfect for us. And at first it was brilliant. We didn't have to write, you know, two systems at once. And we built quite a lot of features actually, adding text amongst many others. As you're probably expecting, we. hit another plateau. The biggest problem now was that despite how effective Phantom was to get us to a certain usable point, we really weren't able as developers to get finer grain control over the frames of the video. And what I kind of mean is uh, specifically, PhantomJS is only able to record browser content with one second intervals, giving kind of a decent gif and not really a video. You could have multiple frames go and only say after four frames it would record it. And that's obviously not ideal we had to basically figure out what's the best solution again and you know on top of that another problem that we had with phantom if i remember correctly is we'd have to replay the video entirely on the back end for it to record really and we still had issues just like with processing with audio it was incredibly hard for us to stitch it we considered some possible solutions but at the time i feel like we we came to the right conclusion we thought that it's just not working out And and bear in mind, by the way, while we were doing all of this, we were running out of cash. So we were also tired of making mistakes like that. And, you know, to be fair, it was probably my fault at the time because I was programming too fast and not thinking enough, maybe ahead of time. And, um, you know, at this point, we just really realized that there is no easy way to do this. And we need to treat technology seriously. Maybe, Maybe we just need to have a long MVP cycle So we're kind of scratching our heads, right? And started looking for another solution that could work. And we've noticed that there were already quite a lot of video editing websites that let you create high quality videos easily, much better actually than what you could do today really with Veed. The only issue that is that these videos would be part of a rigid template that you can't really modify or change and it just wasn't really scalable. And the way those websites or those services operated is they used Adobe After Effects or Adobe Premiere Pro SDKs behind the scenes with high quality predefined templates. But the issue is that you really can't change these templates too much. You could add a bit of text or change a bit of the dimensions, but it didn't really have the full creative scope. And you know, here's the thing, when Sabah and I, we were creatives. We were building Veed for ourselves and what we wanted is an editor that could give you freedom to express yourself in whatever way you you really wanted and quality is something that comes with time. So we weren't really afraid about putting in work. Um, and I think now at this point is when we started building our MVP properly. If you're a developer and you've ever been remotely interested in video editing space, chances are you have most likely used or at least heard of FFmpeg. FFmpeg is is just an amazing piece of technology. It's a complete solution to do so many things with video, converting it, streaming it, the list really goes on. And without it, most of the video editing browser tools would even exist today. So after all our failures up to this point, I think we came to a pretty tough conclusion and that was you know, if we wanted to build a high-quality video editing software, you know, it had, had to be done in such a way that gave us the most freedom to modify and expand on our software, really. And that's also kind of meant that we really needed to properly roll up our sleeves and prepare for, for a long build cycle, and we'll probably run out of cash again uh, trying to do it.
1: With any MVP, right, you have to make decisions trade-offs, and trade offs. And you indicated a bunch of those through that process of rewriting it, using C, getting it to work, using, you know, discovering using FFmpeg. Tell me a little bit about some of those trade offs and specifically how, how you had to cope with them. You know, as far as like, we're going to take on this technical debt or we're going to cut this feature for now. Tell me about some of it from that perspective.
0: We were, we were racing against time, we didn't have investment, we'd, we'd, we couldn't get investment because nobody would give us any money, nobody really believed in us. So I had some cash in the bank, Sabah had some cash in the bank, not that much, maybe like two months left. And so forget about tests, forget about good practices, just write code as fast as you can and just try to get to that to the point where something is working. And, you know, difficult trade-offs, I think, just like I said, we had loads of them. Do we go a little bit hackier and kind of compromise or do we not compromise but prepare ourselves for a long build cycle? That was one. Also the beginning Saba was helping me code everything. It's not like he's not a technical founder. He he also knows how to program, but you know, at some point he had to peel off and do marketing, and that was a, a huge decision because now um, it was just me on my own. You know, Saba had to figure out how to get the word out. We just kept pushing, really, and we did run out of money, of course. Um, that was probably the last time we ran out of money, but I remember vividly how I I, I just got this job and Sabah got a job a few months later, but um, I would wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning, code until nine, go to work, code until five at work, come back and you know meet Sabah again and code until 11 p.m. or like midnight and just keep going. That was pretty much three, four months how we used to do things until we even saw any sort of traction, really. I remember at some point I came back home and I think I just collapsed because it was just so much work. I'm not trying to paint a really scary picture of how it was building Vita. It was actually a lot of fun most of the time, but it was a little bit tough at the beginning. And then, you know, once traction started, it's, it's, it's when really things started to kind of slow down a little bit and it became a little bit easier.
1: Okay, so from there, you've got your MVP. You've done your trade-offs, but you're starting to build your MVP. You're starting to get some traction. You're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel with Veed. Tell me how you progressed the product from there, and how you matured it, and how you built a roadmap deciding this is the next most important thing to build. I'm not sure if it's a, it's a strange thing to
0: say, but we we didn't really have a roadmap for a long time. I I, I think we're still working on our roadmap. But I think in, in in my defense, I'd say that we didn't really need the roadmap at the time because the product was building itself. We, we built the first version of the product. We thought it's going to be special effects or some other cool stuff or drawing pen tool that's going to be, you know, the number one hit. It turned out that it's not. We just listened to customers and they told us, hey. Um, we really want to do this and or do that. We've noticed that our customers were using our um, clunky text tool to add subtitles, and that obviously confused us. There is an easier way of doing it, so we added subtitles as a separate feature, and that's kind of how we kept going. We kept just iterating over what customers have been telling us I know that maybe in hindsight we should have been more data driven, but we were very gut driven and speaking to customers on a daily basis. I think for at least three, four months, that was Sabah's full time job. My full time job was just to fix bugs, make sure that servers are up and running, and just, you know, check out features as fast as we can. That was. Kind of how we defined what we need to build and how the roadmap should go. But I think nowadays we're taking it a little bit more seriously. It's um it's gotten to the point where you know it's not just me and Saber now. It's uh, we've got an amazing team of people and um, they're all incredibly smart and talented and, and most importantly they just care and. Um, we need to be aligned and I think that's kind of what we're trying to figure out. Okay we've survived and we were we were dealing with survival for a long time but we just listened to customers. That's all we did. That's basically why we didn't have a roadmap. We we had so much information coming in from emails and you know <laughs> bug reports and my email was flooded with fix this do this and where where is this feature and Yo, your, your website is buggy as hell. And, um, you know, so it was pretty evident, like if you get 100 emails about certain thing not working, then you just know what to work on. And it's kind of what guided us to this point. But I think as you grow, it becomes a little trickier to figure out exactly what you need to be working on. What's the best use of my time? It always expands as you become a, a bigger operation and, um,
1: you know, a larger team. So in those early days, when you start getting some traction, you built your roadmap, you are starting to grow, how did you go about building your team? And I'm interested in, you know, what you looked for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you.
0: That's my favorite topic. When we first started Veed, I just had this idea that, you know, Sabah and I are just going to code some stuff and, you know, we're going to make some money and it's going to be all great and we're going to have fun. But I didn't realize that actually a big part of fun in this whole journey is meeting these amazing people that come on board. And there are just so many people who care and want to help you. How did we get such a good team? Or how did we look for people um, that really matter? I think it really changes as your company grows. You might have different strategies, but I think there are core principles that are still the same. And, you know, Noah, I think uh, you might really resonate with some of that. If you have a really amazing candidate come in through your doors, you really know about, about it straight away. You just know that person is the right fit. The rest of the interview process kind of becomes a bit of a formality, maybe, to just ch- check a few details. For us, I'd say, a perfect candidate is someone who is really passionate about the idea and really cares and believes in what we do. Simple as that, you know, we want really good humans first and foremost. Everything else is secondary. There are a couple of things on a technical side that I think uh, really have worked well for us. We did in a few steps. We obviously check CVs and if somebody is, seems to be quite good, we interview them. In a um, first kind of first contact is kind of a verbal technical interview. We call it a macro skills test. And you know, I've learned a lot from being grilled by YC, uh, being in a YC interview. How I think I should be interviewing candidates who come in through our doors. So like questions like, "Was the hardest stuff that you built?" and tell me exactly how you built it. You know, all this stuff. It doesn't really matter what you what you ask. But I found that the best candidates leave me feeling, after I leave the interview, that they've taught me something or I've learned something and they're pushing the bar. I feel really energized talking to them and really excited coming to work. That's really what worked for us a lot, I think. Somehow, though, we got lucky and we met Vilko and Mate. They're still with us today and they're amazing engineers, you know, and it didn't matter the fact that, you know, the interview process was pretty crappy. Nowadays, it's, uh, it's a little bit different. We have several steps of interview process, and I think one of the most recent additions was a verbal technical test. And that's something I really enjoy personally. It's something that I, I, re- I reflect on my experience going to YC and going to the in- to interview at YC when I actually never actually went, we got kicked out. I just remember being grilled with so many questions with many YC partners trying to get to the truth of what we were doing. And that's kind of how we approach a lot of interviews today. We ask
1: hard questions. Let's flip to scalability. Uh, did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or are you kind of fighting this as you grew?
0: No, we we weren't really building it to scale. It was... um. Our whole mantra was, we were building it to make, to to survive. You know, scalability is something we were fighting all the time as we grew. Initially, you know, it was just simple as, let's check Firebase on, put some, you know, simple SaaS tools together and, you know, we don't have to worry about anything, it's just Sabah and me and, you know, easy peasy, job done. As soon as our team started growing, as soon as more people started to join Veed, Um, You know, we started improving our tech stack and replacing hacky and not so optimal pieces of software. Just kind of like one by one when it's needed. And, um, you know, eventually we realized that we maybe individually as people on the team, engineers hold too much knowledge in our heads and, you know, sometimes we forget stuff and, uh, you know, sometimes things get messy. So we started optimizing with things like investing time in infrastructure as code stuff like Terraform. We realized that a lot of stuff is manual. We just optimized by, you know, automating a lot of different things. You know, I think to this day, we still have the mantra of let's not over-engineer things. And, you know, we still didn't build a lot of cool things that we could have built because we don't think that they are that important. For example, we're not using Kubernetes just because we felt that there was much simpler solution to do things that we wanted to do. It's a constant fire. You're never going to be satisfied with the way your tech stack works. The bigger you're aiming, the bigger the problems you get. At some point, we had an issue of somebody trying to hotlink our videos and we're losing loads of traffic. So well not necessarily traffic, we're losing a lot of money because some users figured out how to host their videos or films on our platform illegally. And so we had to fight that, and it's one problem at a time, always. We're not perfect yet, but I think we're coming to the point where, you know, we're a bit more structured in things and, um, you know, things are improving bit by bit.
1: Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built with v.io, what are you most proud of? first of all on a personal
0: note i think i'm most proud of our story i i'm just truly shocked and just happy that we survived against all odds and without raising any capital and without any help and honestly i i think we're just so lucky to have such an amazing group of humans working with us it'd be you know a crime to say that was just all me and sabah in all fairness it's you know our team had to sacrifice a lot as well Vilko is one of the engineers on our team he um i think he was the second person who joined us you know at the time we didn't we couldn't pay him for a few months because we just couldn't afford uh paying our own bills so i'm not sure why he stuck around but he did and you know i'm forever in debt to him and um i i don't know it would just have amazing people on the team and they care and um they're here through the bad times and still the same i'm I'm really grateful for that. I'm also proud of how seriously everyone takes their work, how much pride they've taken their work. Our engineering team has built really impressive stuff. And same goes for other teams. But from a technical point of view, I, I, I'm really happy. I think uh, we can do a lot more. But it's great coming to work and just seeing everyone really at it and just wanting to help and wanting to make it a bigger thing and better. And um, it's just a really energizing place to
1: work. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it.
0: It's a a difficult one to answer because I, I feel like we've made so many mistakes that it's just almost impossible to choose one. I think um, we've made so many mistakes that our entire culture shifted and centered around making mistakes and it being okay. (laughs) So um, if I could think of early stage mistakes that I feel responsible for is, um, you know, not doing the right choices when building the right, uh, the the tech stack and we had to re-engineer a lot of things. And, you know, and that kind of is probably a little bit of my advice as well for um, new founders starting it's um it's okay to not know everything just keep going and you're gonna be all right how our team responded to all of that i think we just we just believed it's gonna work we weren't insane we you know we had a pretty good idea that marketing is kind of working people are coming to the site you know it's a bit rubbish right now and sure we have to rewrite stuff but ultimately if we put a little bit of work in
1: it's all gonna be all right So tell me what the future looks like for video and for the product and for your team
0: for a long time we've been uh, quite a small company i mean 18 months ago it was just really no one on the team it was no revenue it was no um no team and and now we're at four million annual recurring revenue growing really fast for us it's um is obviously going to be the same thing as we did we we, we want to continue on our journey of making a, a better the best um video editor there is in you know on the internet that's always going to be our number one but apart from that we are we're thinking about things like oh maybe we could do spin off an api product maybe we could do b2b stuff and um you know there are loads of opportunities and that's kind of like partly why The topic of roadmap is so important for us right now we need to figure out basically which direction we are going and uh, what are ultimately the best bets and um, there is a lot that we could do and uh, i'm really excited for the future you've grown a lot in
1: a very short time and uh, done some great things i'm excited to see you guys continue to take off thank you let's switch to you Timur. who influences the way that you work You know, CEO, CTO, architect, any person, name a person you look up to and why. I think really it's two
0: people that really influenced the way I think, I think. It's um, the first person is Paul Graham. Specifically the essays he wrote, it really opened up my eyes on how businesses should be built. Uh, Reading his stuff really simplified things in my head, especially doing things that don't scale. You know, that essay really changed my perspective on how businesses should be run and operated. So, you know, I highly suggest anyone is interested in starting their own business to dive deeper into his essays. I think um, he shares some really interesting thoughts there. But I think on the tech side, I've been following for a long time a person called Jez Humble. I absolutely love his work. If you don't know who he is, I think he is um, a co-author of DevOps Handbook, and uh, for me personally, most most importantly, Continuous Delivery, he's, uh, I think, still uh, one of the consultants for ThoughtWorks. And you know, he's just sharing a lot of really interesting thought pieces on just kind of how you should run your software teams as well. Because I think a lot of advice that you see on entrepreneurship kind of leaves you wondering, oh, okay, like doing things that don't scale or this or that, how does that exactly connect to writing software or doing things in a more specific environment. I think understanding DevOps and understanding the culture and history of how things progressed in that space really helped me understand what is a better way to run the team. Amongst other things, he really talks about stuff like mean time to restore service versus mean time between failure. All these concepts of philosophical kind of ideas really shaped the way I think how software teams and development in general should be done.
1: Well, we talked about mistakes, right? But a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, uh, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach?
0: Actually, I think my answer is not going to be anywhere in tech, because I think in hindsight, there was really no way for us to find out a better approach or you know a worse approach in technology. It was really trial and error, and I think we we naturally figured it out. In terms of starting a business in general, I think we should have started marketing earlier. We should have really started getting our word out there much sooner. That eventually gives you an idea of whether anyone is really interested in the product. I would say that we did one crucial mistake at the beginning, and that was we didn't charge. We basically were giving away free pizza, but that allowed us to build up a little bit of a momentum and just get that traffic going. That being said, we waited too long. I I wish we started charging a lot a lot sooner than we did, and really we started charging the same day YC kicked us out, and I'm
1: you know forever grateful to YC for that. Really, uh, I would love to dig into that. So, tell me a little bit about that story with what happened with YC.
0: We we came in. It was four partners in the room. It was Sabah and I, and. Um, they're like, all right, what's your vision or something? I mean, I said something stupid. I said, well, a uh, vision like we, we want to get like three thousand pounds a month. That'll be a great vision. And one thousand five hundred for me, one thousand five hundred for Sabah, and we're good. <laughs> and, and they kind of looked at us as well. Oh, well, obviously, Sabah said like something smart and smoothed things out. But um, they kind of looked at us and and said like, oh. You know, we think, uh, you know, we, we think it's going to be a successful company. We don't think it's going to be a billion dollar company, which we disagreed on. Ultimately, it came down to the fact that they were confused about why aren't we charging if we've got so much traffic. And um, that was on Friday, so we got drunk on Friday went to the pub, uh, well, no, not pub, no, a bar in, in San Francisco. And, um, but the next day we, we made a plan and uh, our plan was to get paying customers and come back to YC on Monday and show them that we've got some customers. And that's exactly what we did. We basically um, spent all day on Saturday, just programming. It was pretty hardcore. I'm not going to lie. So I was bringing me coffees and, you know, Vilko and Mate were helping along as well. And then on Sunday, we built it, and we just put it live. And suddenly, we just had customers coming in. (laughs) That was crazy. And I think for us, the reason we weren't charging for a long time is because we really wanted to be smart about how we're going to monetize our product. And, you know, watermarks are not sexy, but they work. And we thought that we could maybe get away with, um, or not get away. I think we thought that maybe we could do something a little bit more tasteful but you know YC just said hey why are you not charging and you know to be honest with you they were right we, we might change this in the future but right now we just slapped on watermarks and there we went and uh, it worked that's kind of how it all panned out and on Monday at 9am we sent them um, an email saying hey look we've got 20 pay- paid customers are uh, you going to reconsider us and, you know, we didn't care at this point if we we're going to... Actually, no, I'm lying. We were, we were really sad when they said no. They said, nah, you, you can't come in. We, we were actually really, really sad. But in hindsight, you know, it all went, went well. And um, a year later, I think, um, we were at 100K era. A couple of months later after that, we were like at a million era. And bloody hell, what a ride that was.
1: Well, last question, Timur. So you're getting on a plane, and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it, they can't wait to show it off to the world, they can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit?
0: <laughs> have you got a landing page? Uh, have you posted it on a Product Hunt? If not, we're gonna write it right now. Uh, that will be probably my uh, first piece of advice. But no, in in if I'm being a bit more serious, then um, having gone through what we've gone through and just seeing so many downs and so many ups. Um, My first piece of advice for early stage founders is to just make sure whatever you're working on is just really fun to work on. And I mean, everything about it should be fun. Ideas should be fun, people should be fun, work, code is fun. But most importantly, I think it should have a really strong meaning to you, whether it is because you're solving your own problem or you just want to get your family out of the hood, anything goes at this point. Because when things are not looking so fun anymore, it'll keep your head above water. That's my first piece of advice, I think. That's just what helped us to get through. And the second thing I think, there are so many great people out there who want to help you. And I suggest, you know, drop ego and just go and meet them and surround yourself with amazing allies who are smarter than you and take pride in their work don't hire replaceable people, hire people who are irreplaceable and trust them, treat them how you'd like to be treated. And you're going to have an amazing culture.
1: That's fantastic advice. Well, more thank you for being on Code Story. Thank you for telling the creation story of V.io. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story